Welcome to Tuesday, my favorite day, and we have a great show for you. First up, Anthony from Queer Eye is going to talk to me about his new cookbook. And then the infamous talk show host himself, Jerry Springer, is here. So you stick right there, and we will see you on the timeline. Good morning, Twitter. I'm Zach Stafford. She's Alex Berg, and you are watching AM to DM. Here's a tweet from Amanda Hess. It is so gratifying to see Tina Turner happy. But as I was reporting this profile of her, was also confronted by how disrespected and wrong she's been by the music industry that she's given so much to. Ooh, here, here. And Jane Coaston tweeted, Tina, I don't know if I could ever forgive all the all that Ike ever did to me, she said. But Ike's dead, Turner laughed, so we don't have to worry about him. <laughs> Which, that is uh, the energy of someone who is Ooh. done with it all. She said, girl, that man's been long gone. And you know what I've been doing? Sitting in Switzerland in my chateau, living. That is exactly what she's been doing. Emphasis on living. <laughs> with, with her husband, who is 16 years her junior. I live And this whole this profile, queen. I mean, this profile was uh, really fascinating because uh, it talked about kind of the, mm-hmm. the rise of Tina Turner, all of the strife and horrible stuff that she yeah. lived through. And now she's like living her best life in retirement. Gives no yeah. fucks. Because people forget that Tina Turner, when she left Ike, had nothing. Nothing. And it literally rebuilt her entire life. She was like a, divor- a woman going through a divorce. She was just recently abused for many years and was broke. And she had to like re-situate herself in a music industry that didn't think she could do it. And not only has she done it, but she's thriving better than all of us. Because I, too, would love a man in Switzerland for my retirement where I can make choices <laughs> of, I'd rather have a chateau over a castle because that's what she did. She chose a chateau over a castle. Queen. So what would you do if you got to be a retired person like Miss Tina Turner? I mean, I think the chateau is, the chateau, <laughs> the younger spouse, is actually all part of the right call. Mm-hmm. And the biggest thing that I that I would want to take into retirement is that she just doesn't seem to care what people think of her. Amen. And she's left behind this really amazing legacy. Um, I found it so interesting that she was saying that she actually uh, doesn't really align herself with the kind of symbol that she has become, mm-hmm. um, you know, of women in music, um, you know, and, and all that stuff. And so I think the biggest thing would be the attitude. Yeah. Of just like, she knows who she is, she's yeah. having a good time, and that's it. What I took out of this profile was that she said, I did all this work for years and years, and I was focused on other people loving me for so long, and now I'm going to love myself. And that's what I'm doing with my man and my my things. She goes shopping all the time. Like, chic. I also know from past reporting I've done that her and Oprah shop in Switzerland a lot together. I mean, <laughs> shit. Like, could you imagine? You and Oprah just like, no. No, I cannot. Like, I cannot. Shopping like Tina and Oprah is like, you don't even look at shit. You're just like, <laughs> you I'll just buy, buy this. It. And if you someone, buy it. If someone uh, you know, is mean to you at the store, you buy the store. You can just do whatever you want. So that's what that's I want to do in retirement, having that much power and capital that I'm like, I could buy you and sell you. Well, let's take it to the timeline. <laughs> what is your retirement dream? Tweet us using the hashtag am 2 Chateau. Chateauberg. That's where I went to live. <laughs> You're invited. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, here's a treat from Alex Wickman. Wickham. Boris Johnson loses his sixth Commons vote in a row. No election before November, and PM faces prospect of being held in contempt of Parliament after No. 10 rejects vote to release private Brexit WhatsApps. Here's a tweet from James Felton. Boris Johnson has now lost six of his first six Commons votes the first prime minister in history to do so. He takes the title away from previous record holder, Boris Johnson, who set the previous record earlier in the evening. (laughs) Wow, 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 wow. Well, joining us today to unpack is BuzzFeed News UK reporter Emily Ashton. Good morning or afternoon. Hello, good afternoon. (laughs) All right, so Emily, uh, there will be no snap vote before the October 31st deadline for Brexit. So what does that mean now? Well, (laughs) how long is a piece of string? I mean, yeah. (laughs) 
talk about Boris Johnson again and the unknowns of Brexit. Um, so now uh, Parliament is suspended for five weeks um, and then it comes back mid-October. Um, and we obviously have this automatic date for Britain to leave the EU on the 31st of October. Um, but it's all been kind of thrown into chaos because um, the rebels have published this bill, which means that actually um, they will ask Boris Johnson to seek an extension and so that, um, that there is no crashing out and so that actually Britain uh, could leave the EU further down the line with a deal. So who knows what will happen? We're going to have to see in the end of October. Huh. Okay, chaos. Chaos was the word chaos. that jumped out of me every time it seems like you come on the show. <laughs> chaos is the operating word and principle. Um, but Parliament also wants the private uh, WhatsApp messages of officials. Um, why do they want those? Yeah, so yesterday you had a, a couple of votes, and um, one of them was the opposition calling on Boris Johnson um, to publish all the correspondence between advisors and the team at Number 10 on both the suspension of Parliament and this thing called Operation Yellowhammer, which is the contingency plans that the government has made for a no-deal Brexit. Um, and so they, what they want to see is WhatsApps, Telegrams, Signals, Facebook messages, emails, texts. They want the government to publish all those so that they can actually make sense of all those um, that correspondence. Um, and that, that vote was passed. So really, the government is supposed to obviously abide by that vote, by that motion. Um, we have seen signals, though, from Number 10 that they're not going to because they're concerned about the privacy rights of the advisors. So we'll see. <laughs> we shall see. So, you know, Boris Johnson, as we've mentioned already, continues to lose. He loses in every way he kind of turns his head in Parliament. What does his political future look like now that he's kind of had a really rough first few months as a prime minister? Yeah, it's not been the greatest couple of weeks for him in Parliament since the summer recess. I mean, now we obviously get a bit of a break from Parliament um, and we come back with the Queen's speech. And the whole point of the Queen's speech is to say, is for Boris Johnson to say, look, I have other things um, that I want to do other than Brexit. He's got all these um, domestic policies that he wants to introduce. But the fact is he cannot get on with those things um, when he is in charge of a minority government, which he is because he sacked 21 members of his own party last week because they didn't follow orders over Brexit. So really, he needs to, this, there needs to be an election before he can move forward. There's, there is no way he can get anything else done now. Um, so the question on everyone's lips is when, when will that election be? And now we know it won't be in October, but it could well be at the end of November, could be in December. Okay, so we've remarked before on the show that all of this can get a little bit confusing. Yes. And I have to say, I was today years old when I saw the phrase <laughs> Black Rod for the first time. Um, and I think I'm not alone because it was trending on Twitter. Uh, can you tell us about what this is? Well, yes. I mean, these are ridiculously archaic scenes from Parliament that um, play out at the end of each session of Parliament, which is normally about a year long. It's, it's called prorogation. It means the suspension of Parliament between two separate years so that um, when you come back, there's a whole new domestic agenda. But it, it, um, it involves a prorogation ceremony, which sees the Speaker, who you know, John Burko, kind of walking into the House of Lords with a few MPs and they bow to some lords at the back of the chamber. Um, and Black Rod is the senior official of the House of Lords that goes to get the MPs and brings them back to the House of Lords um, and bangs on the door and all, all kinds of things. It involves speaking Norman French. Uh, I mean, honestly, absolutely ridiculous. And all this happened last night at half one in the morning because... 
um, the legislation had just gone on and on. And um, so, yeah, imagine all that chaos happening at half one in the morning in the Commons uh, and the Lords Chamber last night. And uh, yeah, absolutely ridiculous. Wow, it seems absolutely ridiculous. And you know, many of us in the, in the United States are laughing at what is happening. In laughing because we don't want to cry exactly. about it. Exactly, yes, you know? very that. But no, you know, Emily, what is the feeling like on the ground with citizens of the United Kingdom who are witnessing what looks to be quite chaotic uh, situations at hand? I know, and uh, I mean, the viewing figures for BBC Parliament, I don't know if you guys ever watch BBC News over there and BBC Parliament, but the viewing figures have gone through the roof because people are treating BBC Parliament now as like a soap opera, as a, as a TV drama. They want to see how it all plays out. I mean, it's the interest levels in Parliament have gone through the roof, but I think people are just quite nervous and wondering what is going to happen. And obviously everything is on hold at the moment until we know, um, if, until we have any certainty over where we're going on Brexit. And at the moment, we don't even have a date for an election. We know an election has got to happen in the next couple of months, but I think it's the uncertainty that people are worried about. And you know, obviously that means all kinds of things like um, buying a house is all on on hold and all sorts. So people just want to um, move on. And that doesn't necessarily mean a no-deal Brexit, but um, you know they would like to see an end, an end to this in some way or another. Mm, they would like to see an end. I think many people would like to see that end too across the pond. Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Ooh. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, when she said people are turning in, tuning into the BBC to see everything that's happening, mm-hmm. it reminded me C-SPAN has been lit since 2016. So, so I get it. I it's get it. Why people are riveted. Yeah. That and Bravo, favorite channels, <laughs> favorite. All right. Well, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. About 100 Hurricane Dorian evacuees from the Bahamas were kicked off of a ferry headed to the United States. BuzzFeed News Los Angeles Bureau Chief John Passantino tweeted. Trump just now on hurricane survivors attempting to flee the Bahamas to the U.S. claims there are, quote, some very bad people and some very bad gang members and some very, very bad drug dealers. BuzzFeed News reporter Amber Jamison is here to explain what happened on the ferry. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, so where were the evacuees heading and why were they asked to get off of this boat? So this was a ferry full of people who'd been lining up um, on Grand Bahama Island uh, at Freeport trying to get off the island. Um, This is obviously an island where the Category 5 hurricane hit. There's, I think, 70,000 homes destroyed. Um, So people are trying to get out. And so they were... It was a ferry that was running between Freeport and um, Fort Lauderdale in Florida. So it's a ferry that usually runs four to five times a week, obviously, since the hurricane hasn't been. And this was sort of the first time um, it was departing since then for people to get out. Mm. And you interviewed the company that runs this ferry. And what did they say to you about the situation? Well, in a statement, they basically apologized. There was 119 people who believed that they were fine to enter the U.S. um, and had to get off the boat. Basically, what happened after sort of thousands lined up and then a few, I think it was about 500 people were on the boat. uh, And then the announcements were made that if people didn't have a U.S. visa, uh, then they had to immediately get off. Uh, So basically, the company apologized said that they had believed that it would be fine for people to be traveling without a visa, um, as is normal, um, but then were told that actually there had had to, there would be issues arriving in the U.S. if people didn't have one, and therefore they asked those people to get off the boat. And that was 119 people, including, you know, families, babies that had to, to get back and go to the island with no electricity and no running water. Yeah, it's just, uh, I saw some of the video yesterday, just really feel so bad for these families. Um, CPB also blamed the ferry company. (laughs) What was their role in all of this? 
Yeah, it was very much a game of sort of each one was blaming the other. Uh, CBP were really trying to say that like they had worked with a, a cruise ship the day before that had sort of 1,500 people um, arriving from Grand Bahama to, to Florida and they had processed those people without issue. So what they said was basically that the ferry company did not coordinate with them and organize things in time. Um, they, you know, officers in Florida were saying uh, that they would have accepted people if they'd stayed on the boat, which, you know, is a bit difficult to, to say if you're on the boat and told you won't be, you know, able to go through to the US, would you stay on or not? Um, but CBP really are trying to say that they're, you know, trying to help people who are stuck with this hurricane. Um, right now there's talk that um, Mark Morgan, who's the acting commissioner, said that, you know, he is considering temporary protected status TP um, for people from the Bahamas escaping this hurricane. You know, they say that they're trying to work and, and, and organize humanitarian visas as quick, quickly as possible for people. Also, to be clear, usually people from the Bahamas don't require a visa to come. So, you know, CBP is saying that they're trying to help people as much as they can. Mm. So how is Donald Trump responding to this situation today? So, yeah, he made a bunch of comments yesterday that were very Trumpian, I guess. They sort of, he'd been quizzed on the South Lawn um, about the ferry and, and somehow started talking about very bad people and there being drug dealers, which there seems to be no indication that, you know, this was a ferry full of um, illegal people uh, or, you know, criminals. One of the things he was saying was that, you know, these people may have come to the Bahamas and then were trying to get to the US. Uh, you know, I reached out to the White House press office and CBP who, you know, declined to comment and Homeland of Security, all of whom, you know, did not elaborate on the president's comments. One thing that CBP did say was that, you know, they are still vetting people that come through. Um, you know, usually the rule is if someone has a passport and a record that shows that they've had no police record for six months, they can come without a visa. Um, what CBP is saying now is, you know, if people do have criminal records, it's not that they won't be allowed into the US if they're in this sort of humanitarian visa, but they will be vetted and, and checked and, you know, looked after by ICE and so forth. So they're trying to help people's lives, but, you know, there's no indication that there's a bunch of drug dealers coming from the Bahamas. Right, right. So what are the next steps as far as evacuations uh, go? Well, one thing they're saying right now is that there aren't mandatory evacuations um, on the islands. They are trying to build some temporary housing there for people. Um, but there are people that are coming and there are uh, more expected um, people. There's flights leaving um, every day. Um, CBP has said that they've got offices ready um, down in airports in, in, in South Florida and that they're really preparing to sort of be able to process people as quickly as possible and, and process visas if people need them much quicker than normal. And, you know, I guess we'll be seeing whether there'll be more of these humanitarian ships that go back and forth. Mm. Well, Amber, thank you so much for joining us. No worries. Thanks, guys. I just love that he cannot let go of that line of drug dealers crossing borders. What is that now since 2016? Something this, like that. This line needs yeah. to go away. Well, coming up, Alex is sitting down with TV's newest judge, Jerry Springer. But up next, it's Fire Tweets. Welcome back. It is time for Fire Tweets, which I feel like we haven't done Fire Tweets with together in it. days. I've missed it. I've missed it. I can't remember who I did it with before. I can. <laughs> Actually, I know. But it wasn't. King Batch. <laughs> I know who it is. King Batch was wonderful. But, All right. Yeah. Ready? Let's get started? Okay. Yeah. Goldilocks, you tweeted, I hate arguing through text. Let's argue in person so I can knock your ass out. Out. Said like a real one. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's when I do not fight through text. I'll send you, I'll go back and forth once or twice, and then it's a phone call, and then it's a hello. 
I'm, I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna lie. I kind of enjoy a text message fight. Do you go to Notes app to type it out? No, I don't do that. But, but I just you get do. so frustrated, and then you're just like, Gah! no. I think the Notes app. You don't. Just, you don't need to see that bubble. <laughs> you don't need to know that the punch is coming. That, that's true. Just, all right, <laughs> Melina, you tweet it. White moms be like, I'm bilingual. I speak English and to the manager. <laughs> Where's the lie? Where's the lie? I have a white mother. It's true. She's yeah. never called the manager. I don't think. Abby mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tweet us. Yeah. DM if you have. I have no further comment. No further comment. Del, you tweeted. What are you doing tonight? It's 7 p.m. I've already showered and gotten into bed. If you wanted to make plans, you should have asked three months in advance, which is 100% my life. I'm going to be at home, ready to go to sleep by 8 p.m. Unless you've gotten an event on my Google Calendar long, long, long in advance. You know why I'm smirking? Why? Because even three months notice, I still may. <laughs> <laughs> I may not be like, ready. I may not. Was I supposed to be somewhere hanging out with you? Because it's <clears> not happening. Sorry. You know, self-care is real. All right. Omar, you tweeted. <laughs> I skip Instagram stories too fast and end up voting on things by accident. So I'm sorry if I said your dog was ugly. Am I sorry if I said that? I'm a little bit sorry. I love that that's the excuse. Girl, you thought the dog was ugly. It's fine. Lean in. It's fine. Have you done this before? Oh, accidentally voted? Oh, yeah. yes. And then I just like make, I don't apologize for it. Sorry, I don't like the dress. <laughs> <laughs> All right, tweet of the day. Ready. Comes from Anand. Just when you thought you were starting to understand British politics, something or someone called Black Rod enters the scene. And thank goodness we had Emily Ashton earlier to yes. explain what this ceremonial role appears to be. Yes, because I know so. you girls were going a lot of different ways when you heard that phrase. You know, there's also just something I find really funny about in such moments of chaos mm -hmm. uh, when, like, your country's political structure is on the verge of collapse. Have you been um, in this? You still— <laughs> No, I'm just saying that we, we still have this, this, like, pomp and circumstance, these very ceremonial mm -hmm. roles mm -hmm. to, like, keep order, even though— it's, you know, it's all falling apart. <laughs> or it feels that way. It, so. Yes, and everyone can watch years and years to see what happens next. <laughs> uh, coming up. <laughs> all right, well, coming up on our show, I'm talking to Kurai, sorry, Anthony Porowski. But up next, we're going live from the district. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News DC Bureau Chief Kate Nacera. Good morning. Good morning. How are you guys? You know, another, another day, another day. Better than the British <laughs> Parliament. Day. Better than it's the British Tuesday. Parliament. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, well is it? I don't know. I, I, There's I don't a know. lot going you know, on. I don't know. All right. Well, let's get to U.S. politics debate. Here's a tweet from Rebecca Bellhaus. Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross threatened to fire top employees at NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association, on Friday after the agency's Birmingham office contradicted Trump's claim that Hurricane Dorian might hit Alabama according to three people familiar with this, this discussion. So Kate, why was Wilbur Ross, of all people, getting involved over weather coverage? Yeah, I mean, weirdly, Noah folds in to the Commerce Department, so he is technically in charge of, uh, of, of our weather. Not in charge of our weather, <laughs> but in charge, of, uh, in charge of the agency that tells us about weather. Um, how yeah. has the Commerce Department responded to this story? So it's been wild. I mean, I was sort of in and out last week, off and on, and, and like catching up on Sharpie Gate and then catching up on all the different statements. And I guess finally what has happened is that the NOAA inspector general has said, uh, we're going to investigate this because this is crazy. I mean, this is uh, this is political influence 
upon scientists, which is not something we've really seen happen in a little while. I mean, it's not unprecedented in the Trump administration by any stretch of the imagination, but um, kind of the most, you know, the 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 predictable end to Sharpie Gate or whatever that uh, that the Inspector General is saying now. Um, you know, politics really doesn't have a place in the scientific community, and these scientists need to work unfettered from uh, political influence, which does not appear like it happened last week. So, Kate, are there any outside agencies looking into why NOAA agreed with Trump's first claim in the first place? Yeah, I mean, like I said, this is this this is this will fall under the Inspector General. I would imagine very soon we will hear from our friends on the Hill, Democrats who control the House, uh, that they will add this to their ever-growing list of investigations. I mean, this is a very after the summer they've got a lot to look into. I don't know how they're going to find the time, but um, that this will soon be investigated on Capitol Hill. So any sense of what might happen to Wilbur Ross uh, and this story? Yeah, I'm, I mean, not much, right? <laughs> like, I don't think Wilbur Ross is going anywhere. Uh, he's been through a lot of other scandals before and is still there. And I don't think that this is something that Trump's going to look at and say that this was, you know, beyond the pale somehow. Uh, this is him. This was Ross defending the president uh, in a, you know, allegedly very corrupt way. And and I don't think Trump's really going to bat an eye. And that's who ultimately, you know, gets to decide this stuff. Um, I'm sure there are a couple members of, of, uh, of Congress who have called for his resignation, but um, I don't think Wilbur Ross is terribly concerned about one or two House Democrats at this point. Mm. Well, Kate, this all started because of Sharpie Gate. But what is this situation indicative of uh, more largely? Yeah, I mean, I think you guys know, right, that this is this is about uh, people in the Trump administration wanting to defend uh, Trump at all costs. I mean, this was not this is something that could have been. You know, an hour story, we would have all forgotten about it. But he he literally couldn't let it go. Trump could not let go the idea that the hurricane was going to hit Alabama, which it just was not going to. And so because of that, uh, he had to use the powers of the federal government to back up his claim. Um, it's not uh, It's not a great... It's not a great thing. It's not very reassuring to think that um, that's how that that's how the government is functioning. You know? Yeah, it's no. not not reassuring in short. Well, here's a tweet from ABC News. They're dead. As far as I'm concerned, they're dead. President Trump says when asked about the peace talks with the Taliban. Um, Kate, walk us back for a second. What exactly was Trump planning with these talks? Yeah. So Trump was uh, planning a surprise peace talk summit at Camp David with the Taliban to talk about, um, you know, ending the war in Afghanistan. We're coming up on uh, the 18th year of that of that war really never ending. And that these peace talks have been between the Afghanistan, the Afghani government and the Taliban have been going on for a very long time. Uh, and Trump wanted to get some credit, right, as what it seems like to me. And that's why he invited them to Camp David. Allegedly, uh, there's been some reporting over 
the advice of the vice president and uh, many of his top advisors. But, you know, it's a very Trumpian thing that he would want to be in the middle of this, get some credit if things worked out. Hmm. And can, that's how it all started. And is there any precedent to yeah. you know, a president inviting a terrorist group like the Taliban to Camp David? That seems <sighs> peculiar. Yeah, uh, I'm not really sure, but certainly not, um, you know, the week of uh, the anniversary of, of 9-11. So that seemed, that I think the timing was also part of why there was so much um, outrage about when, when, it, when it came out that, in fact, that these talks were going to happen, um, that that was part of it. It was just so close to the anniversary of 9-11 that uh, it would have been really sort of beyond the pale to do this now. Uh, and Trump has canceled, you know, we should say that Trump has canceled these talks, um, reversed quickly and said that, you know, we're, we're, we're not going to do it. Mm, well, Kate, thank you so much for joining us today and walking us through both of these very important stories. Thanks so much, guys. All right. Well, more AM to DM is up next, so y'all stay tuned. This is from A to Z, and here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. A Pennsylvania couple who found $120,000 in their account due to a bank error and then went on a shopping spree has been charged with a felony. Here's a tweet from Fox 5 from the couple who took the money. All I'm going to say is we took some bad legal advice from some people, and it probably wasn't the best thing in the end. Note here, some people. Not my lawyer, not an expert. Some people. Some people. Well, you know, this is a really, you know, terrible situation for these folks because, you know, while it is funny to laugh at, uh, it does suck getting a felony, especially if you did not know better. Um, I don't think everyone knows that if money appears in your account, you can't spend it because that's not like a widely known thing. (laughs) Which is understandably weird because you think that out. Once that money is in your account, account. it should be your money because it's in your account and whatever company or bank went there, made an error on their end. So You would think that, but I guess the laws don't sit there. It's technically fraud, and the banks are swooping in really quickly. And these folks, um, the reason why this has escalated so fast is because it looked like they weren't going to agree to a repayment schedule. So the bank was like, girl, give us our coins, and we're going to take you to jail. But, you know, it made me start thinking about, like, if we had all this money, like, what would you do (laughs) if you had no debt? I mean, we've already covered retirement, so I guess I'm, what, like, buying a castle in retirement? But the interim with a a chateau. chateau. A chateau. Won't cost us. Um, But, you know, I think, like, it's so fun to talk about these things, because on Twitter, you saw so many people tweeting, like, girl, but if I had this money, you know, I'd pay off my debts, or I would go on this great vacation, or I'd buy my mom a house. And I think it's so amazing to see that, like, when money comes into the equation, how much we're willing to dream bigger in Mm -hmm. our lives. Mm-hmm. And we get to see what we actually want, which is uh, a chateau for me. <laughs> a, ch- a chateau, just a, a little old chateau. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think uh, just with that caveat that all of the debts would be gone. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have any student loan debt because that realistically would be the first thing that yes. I would spend my money on. Um, I, my first thought was I would get an apartment and find a really overpriced decorator to mm-hmm. actually decorate it real, real nice. Or really? Or with an outdoor space. I would love that in New York City. But then I was thinking, actually, 120K in New York City wouldn't get you You can't that. get an I know, I know. So then I, was like, so then I was like, maybe I would get so um, a payment. vacation home or something. Like, I could okay. get, uh, like, a condo at the beach mm-hmm. or, I don't know, a house, yeah. like, upstate or something, which you could, it could go towards. Would your that priority would be, be with money? Because I think people, we're always dreaming about this because of the lottery, but would your first priority be to do something nice for yourself or for the people around you? Because I feel like there's two types of people in the world. There are people that are like, I'm going to go give this to my cousin, my family, and other people that are like, 
I'm taking it in. <laughs> yeah, um, I think that ultimately, uh, I like the idea of getting some kind of uh, property that you can share with yeah. people that you can like open your home and your hospitality up to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, of course, I would think about my family and you love your them, family. and I would decide. I do, yeah, yeah. and I would uh, decide. You know. Uh, I want to do something good for them, too. So I love that. Well, thank you, Alex, for answering that. I want to hear from you all now (laughs) to see what you would do with those little coins. So if you got $120,000 and your debts were gone, what would you spend it on? Let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. Up next, Zach is speaking with Fab Five member Anthony Porowski about his new book, Anthony in the Kitchen. Stay tuned. Cooking. Oh, hi, y'all. We have a real treat for you all today. Queer Eye star Anthony Porowski is here to talk about his new cookbook, Anthony in the Kitchen. Yeah. Hi, congratulations. Thank you so much. People are so excited about this. Thanks. I am too. It's like, it's crazy. To, I still get overwhelmed when I just see the actual cover and I remember all of the work and all of the people that sort of like came together. Yeah. It's like Queer Eye. It's like a whole big, massive group of people came to create this thing. Yeah. And now it's out for and everyone And you can put it out in the world and let people see it. Yeah. Well, I feel like for you in this book, it has to be especially kind of anxiety-inducing because it's not just a cookbook, it's also a memoir. Right. Why did you choose that style? I mean, look, I'm a sensitive guy and I'm very emotional and like everything that I do, I think I, if I want to back it, I have to like support it 100%. Mm-hmm. And so we spent a lot of time trying to figure out like what kind of a book I wanted to produce and like did I want to keep it very technical? Did I want it to be an extension of Queer Eye? And then my brilliant editor, Rux Martin, basically was like, it doesn't have to be one thing or the other. She's like, think about your Polish heritage and like yeah. your weird relationship with, you know, growing up and like family stuff and like just make, make, put all of it in there. Just mm-hmm. throw it all in. And I've never written a re- single recipe down in my life. So really? Like actually writing them all out wow. and thinking like, why the hell is this dish important? Like, mm-hmm. why does it have to be in here? And when I thought of the backstory, like there's always a story behind mm-hmm. it. Like I really have... I really feel like all the dishes that like are important to us, the things that we like look back on, sometimes it's nostalgic, sometimes it's our heritage. Mm-hmm. Like there's always a beautiful story yeah. there. And why do you think food has that relationship? Because I believe the same thing. You know, food, I think David Chang says, you know, food is nostalgic and good food has nostalgia built into it. One should take you back to a place. But why do you think food is that vehicle? I mean, it's look, it's how we connect. Like we we have to nourish ourselves. Mm-hmm. For me, it's like my ultimate love language. It's how I show my appreciation and my respect for other people. It's how I connect with strangers, whether it's at a restaurant or whether it's at home making a, a meal for somebody. It's like I grew up in a really dysfunctional home growing up. And like the, the sacred time that we had where we actually all got along was when we had a feast and where we all sort of like were able to partake in this thing together. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's like first dates, trying to impress somebody, make a banging risotto. I- it's like... It's at the center of everything. Bro, I feel like you're reading my notes because I was going to ask you, I need some advice. I need advice because you know it's cuffing season, which means it's the time of year everyone's trying to get with a man or a person or whatever. It's called cuffing season? Cuffing season. I've never heard of that before. Is it because I'm Canadian? Uh, maybe I don't okay. know. Well, you know what? I just learned something new. So, so thank you. you. you can't it's use, cuffing season. You can't use Canadian for everything to be an excuse. Okay, but you know, cuffing season is the time of year which you cuff up with someone who's warm to keep you warm. Okay. So, what advice do you have from your book on what dishes to create for someone if I want to, you know, cuff with them? Gosh, I mean, try to start something that you're at least familiar with. Okay. Here's a mistake that I always make, but I'm trying not to, so I'm just going to say <laughs> Tell it. Me about I always mistake. try to make something for the first time to really try to impress someone. The like first should, time? Yes, because I'm always like, you know what? I've never made this before. Like, let's so be ambitious. It's the first time being alone with this person, first time making a dish. You are a risk taker, girl. Big mistake. Like, you should do something that you're familiar with. Yes. I feel like risotto is a good way to start. 
You it's really simple. like risotto a lot. I love what risotto. What is so important about risotto? There's is the just, butter. There's actually not that much butter. It's just, it's the simple, but you know what it is? Because for about maybe like five or six years or longer, I was making it wrong. And I was just adding all the stock. I was adding cold stock. I was mixing mm -hmm. it too hard. And with like three simple rules of technique, you can make the perfect risotto. And it's like, it's what I remember when I was in university and I had friends over and I had no freaking money, mm -hmm. literally living off like $40, $50 a week on food. And I was able to make it with like a leftover cup of wine and you were able to like feed a family of students. So risotto is the most romantic meal that you think you can I think so. But okay. omelets are even more romantic because you can make those for breakfast. There you go, people. Omelets is... Impressing the... someone in the morning. Imagine you wake up, you roll over, and the person next to you is like, how do you like your eggs? <laughs> that was very erotic. We're going to move on from that. Yes, I do. Dear Isn't men, that nice, though? Dear men out there, I want an omelet with mushrooms and cheese. Well, there you go. Well, you know, Crispy speaking mushrooms. of your deep knowledge of food and what makes people happy, Queer Eye season is currently filming, yes. and we have some great pictures of y'all from Japan, I think. Mm. There we go. Look at y'all out on the road around the world. You're global. What can you tell us about Eco. the next season? What can we expect? Um, you know how Netflix works. I sure do. I'm not allowed to say very much, but um, <laughs> I will say that for anybody who had an appreciation of Mama Tammy in, mm -hmm. in season two, episode one, I mean, she left a mark on me and on many people. Um, we found someone who I think is very different, her own story and everything, but just somebody who just really shows up for others. And there's a certain someone who managed to give me the same sort of guttural okay. cry where I physically tried to leave the scene. But like, it's, you know, it's so different. Japan is a completely different country mm -hmm. culturally. Like the, the, the etiquette is just, it's, it's like a different planet almost. Mm -hmm. But the human experience and the need to connect with other people and like that striving to want to be a better person and to show up for others, like it's universal. Mm -hmm. And I'm so excited that we get to do it with Japan. Yeah, and what I love that you all are going to Japan is you know, Japan's a really interesting place for queer politics and queer life. You know, they recently just had their first Pride Parade. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really, you're seeing, you all are able to have this global conversation about what being queer is. And I'd love to know, what is it like for you to now be this queer public figure that is kind of tasked with making the world better, not only on the show, but out around the world? Yeah, I mean, look, I was like a totally private citizen, what, two years ago? Mm -hmm. And so I'm still figuring it out. I'm by no means an expert. But again, it's like tying it back when you're asking like what went into making the cookbook. I have to make it personal and I yeah. have to sort of like start somewhere where there's an organic fit where I can really back it. Um, I was really first, um, I was super triggered. Recently there was um, a pride march in Białystok, mm -hmm. which is um, a northern city in Poland, and they had their first pride march ever. And a lot of um, young LGBTQIA plus youth and allies tagged me in these really violent videos where they were throwing flour at protesters. And I found out later that they were actually throwing rocks at them. Mm -hmm. And I was, there was something, even though I'm, I was born in Canada, but I was raised very Polish, it was my first language, I still feel very close to my heritage. I'm only allowed to speak Polish in my house with my father. Um, there was something like, I felt like it was a call to action for me where it was mm -hmm. kind of like, sometimes you just can't be complacent. Yeah. And, and you have to say something. And you, you not have to only do something. said something, but you wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post, which is yeah. really fantastic. And what was it like sitting down and writing those words? Did you ever imagine that you would be having this platform where you'd be speaking to something that folks out there that do not realize this, what's happening in Poland is huge news right now. Right. This is a very big deal. And you have become the face of that in America for us to understand it. I just got like a chill and a bit of back sweat coming down the back because sometimes I try not to take on that responsibility. But um, here we are. And I just think, I, I think that it's important. I think that, you know, the youth in Poland need to know that we're watching. Mm -hmm. The whole world needs to know, actually. Like it's, like there's some really messed up stuff going on in this country, but we are lucky in a sense, you know? Mm -hmm. Like we're able to actually march through pride. I marched pride 
on the Queer Eye float, and we were able to do it safely. I did it in Canada safely. In Poland, they're not able to do that. But let's also address the fact that they had their first Pride March ever, mm -hmm. and that's like a huge yeah. deal. And lots of people showed up to support them. Lots there of people lots showed of up, there. and there are more of them going on right mm -hmm. now. <clears throat> Excuse me as well. Yeah. Yeah, which is incredible. So, you know, speaking of love, and we're about to run out of time, I have to ask about your love life or what we thought was your love life, and that was Mr. J Mr. Jonathan Van Ness. Everyone was obsessed with this, you know, what we call that shipping? Shipping when you ship someone? Shipping, yeah. Why were people so passionate about seeing you two in deep romance? I don't know. Honestly, it's something that started out, it was July 4th, we were leaving um, a dear friend's barbecue party, and we were in the car, and purely as a joke, I wish I could take credit for like orchestrating <laughs> this whole thing and like it being like some, some brilliant PR firms came in no, and <laughs> seriously, it was like purely like let's just take a dumb photo and like mm -hmm. do a little kiss, and then it turned into this whole thing. And then we decided he came over and we were like munching on chips as one does when yeah. you're the two of us with just a little bit. This is what happens when you take us off set and we have too much time on our <laughs> hands. Carbs and we decided and to start JV Anthony, which is like our couple's mm -hmm. Instagram page. And we just had so much fun doing it. And we laughed like idiots. And that's mm -hmm. something, you know, people like Jonathan just bring out like the silly little boy in me. Oh. It was super fun to watch. You know, it was, it was dreamy. It's also fun to think about, are you gonna fall in love with your best friend? What does that look like? And it could be Anthony and JVN one day. Possibly one day. <laughs> we'll say a prayer or a light a candle. I don't know. We're gonna figure it out. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for being thank here. Thank you for having me. It's been me. lovely. I really having appreciate you. it. Thank all you. of you out there, Anthony in the Kitchen is out now. But up next, I'll sit down with the legendary talk show host, Jerry Springer. Oh. You know him from The Jerry Springer Show, and he's a TV legend who's back with a new series, Judge Jerry. I'm talking about Jerry Springer, who joins me now. Welcome. Well, thanks. It's great to be here. You were able to step out of your uh, courtroom and make some time for us. Yes, uh, I took my robe off, and uh, actually, the reason they gave me the job is because I save in a clothing allowance. <laughs> just wear the robe. Just wear every the day. robe every single yeah, day. No decisions to make. So, what appealed to you about uh, taking on this TV judgeship? Well, it it's really it brings my whole life in um, in a complete circle because I started out as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing I really was trained to do. And, you know, then I went on into politics and journalism and the crazy talk show. But now to wind up and back to something that I was actually trained to do, it's, it's exciting. And, you know, it's the first grown-up job I've had in 30 <laughs> years. You know, I, I, it, you know, it's been a circus what I was doing with the other show. So now I get to uh, I actually get to think and read. And mm. it's, I'm enjoying it. So helping people work through their problems in a courtroom seems, I guess, tame by comparison oh, to what you were sure. doing before. What kind of cases are you hearing? Well, uh, they, everything from car accidents to landlord, tenant, to uh, this guy shot the neighbor's dog, um, all kinds of, it's um, small claims. So it's $5,000 or less. But it's like all the other court shows to that extent. The only thing which distinguishes one from the other, I guess, is the personality of the judge. So I joke around a little bit because I can't help it. But in the end, I have to be serious because these, these are real cases. And the judgment I make, they can't appeal in a court of common pleas. So I have to be serious about what I finally decide. And I like that responsibility. Has there been any case so far that's been really challenging to make a decision or any that have stumped you? Well, they are challenging because you have a conflict always, or often, not always, between what is morally right, what is just, what is fair, what you and I would say, well, this is obvious, this guy deserves it, and yet 
there's the law, and the law isn't always just. The law isn't always fair. It was passed for whatever reason, whoever had clout over the legislators. And so sometimes, so the first thing I always do is look for what is the fair, just decision, and then based on what state they're from, because I have to apply the law of that state, find a law that justifies this moral decision. And that, that, that's sometimes difficult to do. Now, uh, when it comes to TV judges, uh, there are a few different personalities out there. Yes. Um, do you have any plans uh, for how you're going to compete with Judge Judy and her popularity? Well, she's the best, period. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, you know, this is my first day doing it. So I, you know, can't even talk about us in the same sentence. But our personalities are different. Yeah. Um, you know, she's, uh, she's a disciplinarian. And she's very strong and very, this is the law, boom, that's it. Um, I tend to approach it more as how I would talk to my own kid or my own grandson. In other words, I have to be firm at times, but always explain why I'm ruling the way I'm ruling. So they're not just going to get a decision. They're going to get an explanation beforehand. So, you know, I, I, I just can't be... Boom, you're out of here. Kind of thing. <laughs> Have you had the opportunity to meet with her or get advice oh, from her, her at all? You know her. She's, you know, she's she's a lovely lady, and she's only been nice to me forever. So, uh, no, I'm, you know, I'm pleased that I'm in the same discussion with her. <laughs> but uh, you no, know, my show will be different just because we're different. Mm. It's been interesting just in talking to you so far to hear you refer to the Jerry Springer show as crazy. Um, yeah, no, stupid too. Okay, well, yeah. uh, you know, looking no, back. No, I love doing it, but it's, it's crazy. <laughs> um, I, how, how did you, I guess, come to that uh, honest conclusion that that's, that that's what it is for you? Um, looking back, I mean, is there anything that you regret or you would have changed or done differently? No, uh, nothing I would have changed uh, simply because I believe in free speech. Mm. And prior to the time our show came on in 1991, virtually all American television was upper middle class white. Mm -hmm. And it was just, there's nothing wrong with people who are upper middle class white, but they're not the only people who live in America. And that's all that was reflected on our media. And all of a sudden our show came on and you had people doing the same thing that celebrities do the same thing that the rich and powerful and beautiful people do, and yet we can't watch their movies or, you know, or buy their books or their albums quickly enough because they're beautiful and they're rich and they're wonderful. And then you see the people on my show who aren't necessarily rich, who aren't powerful, who, you know, who don't look like models, and we call them trash. And it's the same behavior. And so I kind of like the idea that you're a human being, you get upset when you're hurt. You know, they, they weren't, didn't luck out maybe in the gene pool of parents or they didn't luck out with having a wonderful brain or a college education or whatever it was. And, but yet, they're like everyone else. We're all the same. Some of us just dress better. Mm. And uh, that's it. Mm. Um, the show, some people have criticized it for exploiting those kinds of people who, you know, don't have money or power and, yeah. uh, and their problems and traumas. And, uh, also but that's an elitist view. Because that says, because that question never gets raised when rich, powerful, good-looking people go on the late-night shows and no one ever says to them, oh, you're exploiting them. You're, ex you're exploiting them for talking about their scandals or whatever. And yet we say, 
oh, you don't have money. We're going to protect you. We're not going to let you go on television. We're not going to let you complain about what's going on in your life because we know better. It's not good for you. No. You know, either you have the same rule for all people. If you say people shouldn't be on television talking about things that upset them in their private lives, then let's make that the rule. But don't say because you're good looking and rich, you're entitled <laughs> to be on. Well, can so, we also, can one also say that, uh, you know, perhaps we have this criticism because those individuals weren't as media savvy as someone who might be going on to a late night show? Well, I don't know who knows more about what they feel like than, them, than they themselves. What, in other words, if they are talking about or screaming about or whatever, something that is hurting them in their relationship, in their personal life, who among us has the right to say, you don't have savvy to talk about it? So they don't speak the Queen's English. They're just as upset. And, and this idea that, for example, if an English professor from Harvard comes home one evening and finds his wife in bed with the next door neighbor, he doesn't say, forsooth, my dear, what is it that I have found? No, he'll probably start throwing things, cursing, using the F word and everything else. Because deep down, we're all alike. Some of us just cover it up better. We, we present ourselves in a different way. But no, this idea is, my view is, if this is a free society and we have free media, which we must have if it's a free society, then no one has the right to tell someone else, you don't meet our standards for being on the show. I don't like the way you talk. I don't like the way you look. I don't like that you don't have a full mouth of teeth. I don't like that you uh, didn't go to college. And this isn't good for you. Some of my friends will make fun of you. Wow, that's really elitist. So no, let it all out there. And you know, they should have rights like everyone else. I want to get to this tweet from Natasha Oladikun, who said, how old were you when you found out that Jerry Springer used to be the mayor of Cincinnati? And you're so well known for your career in TV. What is it like now when a younger generation learned that you yeah. had this political and legal career beforehand? Yeah, they say, what? Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's, I've been really lucky. I mean, really lucky. And uh, that was the best job I ever had, being mayor. Yeah. That was a serious job, and you know you're responsible for people's lives, et cetera. So I, I love that, and it, politics is still my main passion, and um, I make my living in show business. But my passion, outside of my family, of course, uh, my passion is political, social issues. Mm -hmm. I'm very far left. I'm a liberal, mm -hmm. and uh, so it. it you know, I'm not saying most Americans agree with my point of view, but <laughs> nevertheless, I'm liberal. And, uh, and so th that is great. But I always knew to keep my politics pure, I always had to, I always had to make a living doing something else. Hmm. If you have to make your living in politics, you will start to compromise your positions because you have to get reelected to put food on the table for your family. Mm -hmm. So what happens is some very good people that start out in politics with the best of intentions, all of a sudden the primary goal is to get reelected and they start rationalizing, well, I better vote this way because I won't be able to do a good job for the people unless I get reelected. So they start compromising and making deals and all of that. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that corrupts our politics. I decided early on that 
Politics would be like religion. It's something you really believe in, something mm. you work on, but I would never make a living at it. I would find something else. I thought I would be making my living being a lawyer. I didn't know that I would wind up being in showbiz, but now I'm back to being a lawyer again. <laughs> back to being a lawyer. So, you know, my parents would now have been proud that, oh my God, Gerald's a lawyer. <laughs> well, I saw that you uh, recently donated to Kamala Harris's campaign. Yes. Um, why did you want to back her for 2020, or at least for the primary? Well, to be honest, I would right now vote for a ham sandwich <laughs> um, over, you know, the current occupant. Um, but uh, I like her. I, um, I think she's incredibly smart. Um, I also think she's strong enough to go up against Trump. Mm -hmm. um, she has the prosecutor blood in her, mm -hmm. so Trump's not going to get away with anything. You know, she's not going to be intimidated by him. Mm -hmm. And um, I also love the idea that she's uh, a woman and that she's African-American. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that combination in this time and also of a younger generation you know, people my age, we've had our run, and young people today, they're going to live with the decisions that the next president makes. You know, mm -hmm. people like me are going to be gone. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it really is important that it is someone younger. And because you see the presidency ages you anyway. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I don't dislike any of them. I, you know, believe me. Any one of them will get my full support and my contribution and all that. But um, to start out, she really impressed me. Hmm. And um, I hope she does well. But as I said, if someone beats her, then they're going to have my support. Hmm. Well, it has been so fascinating getting to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, you're great. Thank you. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks. Check your local listings to see where you can watch Judge Jerry now. More AM to DM is coming up next. Welcome back. That conversation just made me realize what my, I wish my retirement plan were, which is that I want to be a TV judge. Like, because come on. that seems like a great job yeah, to have. Mayor, now TV judge. It's amazing. Yeah, my yeah. phone is blowing up because my mother is freaking out. Over like, <laughs> she's like, I really like Jerry Springer right now. <laughs> Honestly, so, anytime I can bring your mom joy on I the show, I know, I know we've like, done something. In right, the family so. group chat, she is all going right, in. All right. So there you go. Maybe he should run too. There'd be... My yeah. mom can run your campaign. Here. <laughs> there you go. Well, it was a great conversation, and thank you for uh, for doing that for thank us you. today. Um, all right. Well, Princess Leah tweeted this following our conversation about Boris Johnson. I haven't had coffee yet because we ain't got coffee money. So this Brexit talk got my head hurting. <laughs> we ain't got coffee money. Yeah, I mean, girl. Yeah, I'm gonna pray that coffee mon money arrives soon. Yes. It's, yeah. it's getting late in the day. Yes. Princess. Yeah, set, give us your Venmo, so we'll hook you up with some coffee. Money. I totally will buy you coffee. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now I'm gonna regret this. <laughs> <laughs> well, we wanted to know what uh, would you would spend $120,000 on if you didn't have to give it back. Michael says, pay off my student loans and move to Canada. Move to Canada. Huh. Oh, Toronto's lovely. Montreal. Yeah. Wonderful. All right. Well, Nichelle tweeted this during my conversation with Mr. Anthony. Does Anthony's book include a centerfold? <laughs> The girls want to know. He is fine, and girls, he is single now. So there you go. There you have He's it. He's on the market. So I'll send him a little DM for you. And see what happens. <laughs> well, thanks to our guests, Emily Ashton, Amber Jamison, Kate Nacera, Anthony Porosky, and Jerry Springer. We will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day. Hold up. 